The following program is an MLWRadio.com production. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Today's episode of What Happened When Monday with Tony Schiavone is brought to you by BrandNewHouse.com. Of course, we've been telling you for the last few weeks about how you can get your very own brand new house with as little as just $500 down. And the great thing about a brand new house is not only is it new, it's custom to you. So you get to pick where it is and what it looks like from the color of the brick to the flooring, the countertops, the kitchen cabinets, the door handles, the paint, whatever. It's all your choice at brandnewhouse.com. You can also own your very own brand new house for roughly what you're paying in rent right now. And again, you don't need a down payment. You might not need a down payment at all, but many families can get a brand new house for only $500 down at brandnewhouse.com. The best part though, is everything is brand new. So there's no repairs and your new home comes with a warranty. And no matter your budget, you can own a brand new house at brandnewhouse.com. So what are you waiting for? Go to brandnewhouse.com right now. Welcome to WHW Monday. Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson. Jim Crockett, First Arcade, 605 NWA, TV title, Cajun Omni, The Bunkhouse Stampede, Flair and Horseman, Garvin, Bogey, Magnum, Dusty, Express Tactics, Turner, Bonin, Mid-South Joy World Championship Wrestling. Talking about the great years of World Championship Wrestling, the NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions. Tony and First North, they win, look, Shivani's back again, world title split off, center stage, Bischoff, Disney, Hogan, and Nitro, New World Order, and The Crow, Russo, Arquette, Champ, Vinny, Mac, Simulcast. Tony's back with Conrad, not your classy podcast. Watch along, try not to laugh, lowest rules, cat back. This wasn't the initial plan, Tom Ziggs a good-looking man. Klondike Bill, make a chair. Tommy, you come over here. What happened when? WHW Monday. And now, let's go to the ring, and here's your co-host. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When Monday on the MLW Radio Network, and the man of the hours with us, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, how's it going? Hey, Conrad, how was your week, buddy? Do okay? Well, I did okay. Uh, Bruce and I had a great time out in Las Vegas. I'm still uh, feeling it a little bit, but I'm going to try to kick out for you today. All right. Well, you know what they say, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and what happens on what happened when kind of goes all over the country. So everybody talks about it, right? So I need to be careful what I'm saying, I guess. I feel like I should mention, too, at the uh, meet and greet at our show here in Las Vegas with Bruce, I had at least a dozen people come up and not necessarily reference you or Tommy Young, which is sort of the usual. I had a dozen people ask about Lois Shivani. Are you serious? What's the... My favorite part of the whole deal, too, Tony, is multiple people came up and said, where is she? And, you know, I had a natural inclination to think they were asking about somebody else. And I, I said, where is who? And without fail, every time, Lois Shivani. You know, that's absolutely amazing. I, I, I guess uh, I guess Lois Shivani is over. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we have somehow managed to get over Klondike Bill, Tommy Young, the Barbarian, and Lois fucking Shivani. Yeah, what a crew that is. The Barbarian, Tommy Young, Klondike Bill, 
and Lois Shivani. How would you like that group to play bridge with or go to a party with? Huh. I think it would be the, the most fun party ever. It, it almost sounds like a ragtag group from a War Games match, does it not? <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, the Last Man or Woman Standing. And uh, it, it's funny. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I've talked to Lois about this. And when I make the phone calls to, <clears throat> to all those who, who buy shirts, and, and again, everybody, you know, buying shirts from us means so much to me. Uh, it really does, because I know your money is hard to come by. It's, it's hard-earned money. Uh, so it means a lot to me, but every time I, not every time, but many times when I talk to people, they will ask me about Lois too. What's Lois doing? Is she sober? Is she in the kitchen? And I'll, and if, if I'm making that phone call and she's there, I'll have her shout something in the background and they love it. They absolutely love it. So there you go. But it's a difference when you can hear about her and talk to her and then have to live with her. You know, it's, it's a different thing. So. Well, I like having, uh, you know, sort of um, the grandparent situation with Lois. I get to play with her and have fun and get her hopped up on sugar and then send her home to you. <laughs> That's the best thing. You got it made, buddy, because she goes home with me or I go home with her. I don't know. And, uh, you know, uh, just another Lois Shivani thing. This uh, this wedding ha- has been, as all weddings are, you know, kind of difficult to get through. There's nothing easy about uh, financing a wedding or planning a wedding or even, you know, uh, pulling one off. But when you've got a, a mom of the bride who's as emotional and opinionated and obstinate and difficult as Lois Shivani, it makes it even more difficult. So I don't think I know if I told you the story. Lois said, what are we going to do after the reception? Are we going to go out? We got a lot of friends coming and I think we should go out because I know she wants to get, you know, hammered. Uh, and I said, I don't know about you, but I'm going to bed. I'm going to go home and go to bed. She said, why? I said, because I'm spent. I'm done. I, I've, I've, it's, it's, <laughs> we've been working on this thing for over a year. I'm done. So, uh, Conrad, uh, and for all my friends who are coming to the wedding, who are listening to this podcast, Lois is ready to go out and drink after the reception. Well, you can go ahead and count her down for two more because, uh, <laughs> myself and the person I speak for. We would be more than happy to go out and tie one on with Lois Sharon. Uh, well, she can tie one on. She's one of the best at it. Well, and we're going to go back and look at one of the best that ever did it when it came to the war games. Believe it or not, uh, this is a five-star match, and everybody is excited for it. And I am, too. And it's an interesting time because we're going all the way back to February 24th, 1991. And it feels like WCW is a little bit out of their comfort zone. They're not running in the southeast here. They're in Arizona at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix, Arizona. And they only draw like 42000 bucks there. Uh, but they do get a 1.1 to a 1.3 buy rate, depending on who you believe, which is roughly 140 to 170,000 homes. And the total gross of this show is going to land somewhere between 2.8 and 3.4 million. So even though... The gate is not tremendous. You know, there's only 6,800 fans there, only of which 4,300 were actually paying. It's it's a weird deal because it still feels like a financial success, even though it might not at first appear like one. Right, Tony? Well, it may not appear like one, but but I think going back and looking at the show and listening to the crowd react uh, and uh, listening to the commentary, which, you know, that night... 
uh, since I was not on commentary, I, I did not listen to the commentary that night. But going back and listening to it, uh, it was sensational with Jr. and, and Dusty. Uh, and the crowd was into it. Uh, I think overall it, it was a success. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, a lot of times I don't know if you can count success as, as actual numbers or not. But moving forward, I think it did a lot for WCW and did a lot for WCW moving out west and being in Phoenix. Those fans were into what we were doing. Well, and I'll tell you who's excited to be back, and that's the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. You know, it's uh, it's become apparent that he's going to be heading in, um, and when he does, he sort of is uh, automatically crowned the new booker. And Magnum TA um, is also going to be on the team, along with uh, Wyndham, Magnum, uh, Grizzly Smith, Kevin Sullivan, Ron West, and Jody Hamilton. Right. Um and everybody sort of turned upside down with, you know, Dusty Rhodes being back. From your perspective, when Dusty comes back in, is this something that overall the consensus is good, or are there a lot of the boys sort of groaning like, oh, not this again? Well, there was some of the groans. And, of course, you know, uh, uh, I heard some of the groans. But but I think overall, not not only do I think overall, I know overall we were pretty excited about it. Uh, the fact that we had somebody in who, regardless of the downfall of Jim Crockett promotions, we've discussed it on on previous versions of what happened when in the archives. Uh, regardless of the downfall of Jim Crockett promotions, Dusty Rhodes had plenty of success, and Dusty Rhodes knew how to book, and he had gone to the WWF, he had been dressed in polka dots, and so we all thought, you know, now he's going to come back with uh, this... Uh, a newfound excitement about it. I Let me tell you the story how I found out about it. Uh, and I think it's interesting just because of what I know. And I, I may have uh, told you the story before. We were on our way to Los Angeles. And we were, this is around the first of the year. We were on our way to Los Angeles uh, to uh, participate in Family Feud. I don't know if you remember the WCW stars being I on do. Family Feud. Yeah. yeah. All right. And... Uh, I was I was getting ready to leave, go to the airport, and I was I I was in a limousine with Kevin Sullivan and a bunch of us in going in the limousine. And right before I walked out of the office, Jim Hurd says, "Here, I want you to take these. These are the next shows, uh, and see what you think." And I said, "Okay." So I grabbed them, not looking at them, walked downstairs, got in the limousine, and looked at them. Once I sat down in the limousine. And I immediately, immediately recognized Dusty's handwriting. Wow. And I looked to Kevin. I said, Kevin, dream's coming back. He said, what? How do you know? I said, look, no one. This is Dusty's handwriting. He's coming back. And he said, I'll be damned. You know, he and Dusty always got along. Uh, right. And uh, they were friends. So I think Kevin was happy about that. You know, that we always kind of wanted someone. And I, and I believe this. I, I've said booking committee so many times on this on this podcast, a lot of people have shit at it. I understand. But there were various booking committees with no one in charge. Now with Dusty back, there was someone in charge who was going to lay out the show. If nothing else, he'd lay out the show. We wouldn't have to discuss it. Uh, and I think we were all happy about that. So uh, just kind of the capsule. Yeah, there were some guys upset about it. I know. Like anything with any bookers, like when Bill Watts came in, there were people upset. When Ole was running the, the book, people were upset. 
But overall, I think everybody was very excited about Dusty coming back. Well, and, and somebody who may have been excited about it more than others is Scott Steiner. Because one of the first things Dusty does is he changes a main event for a Clash of the Champions that had been planned to be Ric Flair versus Brian Pillman. And now replacing Pillman will be Scott Steiner. He was also starting a Ron Simmons babyface turn, and he aimed to have both Arn Anderson and Barry Windham broken up into singles wrestlers with Anderson working in a bit of a three-way program with Tom Zink and the now tweener Bobby Eaton for the television title. So lots of changes, but you can definitely see you know, where some of this has Dusty's fingerprints on it. Do you think Flair and Pillman might have been a better match than Flair and Steiner, and would their careers have been any different, do you think, if the original match went down? I don't know if their careers would have been any different, but I think it would have been a much better match. I, I know Dusty came back with the idea of Scott Steiner is a potential star, mm-hmm. and let's see what he can do in singles competition. I, the, that match at the uh, at uh, the Clash of the Champions was was kind of like, uh, you know, we'll just see. Uh, and I, I think we saw that it, it really didn't work. And uh, hindsight being what it is, it probably should have been Pillman because Pillman was sensational. Well, and what's interesting is, you know, Scott Steiner would go on to be a big single star, but it doesn't happen for like eight more years. So, again, it's showing you where Dusty sees something before maybe a lot of other people do. Let's talk about the NWA hotline. Once upon a time, you were doing a segment on there. Yeah. And the Dirt Sheets would write, Tony Schiavone did a segment talking about who was the best wrestler in the world today. And he said whenever people talk about it, it always comes down to Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. He compared the two, saying he's one of the only few guys who actually has been able to be friends with both and broadcast a lot of their big matches. And the dirt sheet said that you put over Hulk Hogan as, you know, the stronger of the two and saying that he's the best drawing card, he gets the best reaction live, and really putting him over strong. And I found this interesting to read because... You're working for the NWA, but yet seemingly putting over the WWF guy. Right. What's up with that? Well, let me tell you what's up with that. Uh, Lance Russell, uh, uh, rest in peace, uh, and another guy, like a Bob Cottle, who should be in the so-called Hall of Fame. Uh, Lance Russell was in charge of the hotline. And Lance told me, he kept telling me, he said, he said you need to do something on the hotline that will get people talking. You need to do something out of the ordinary. You need to do something that people don't expect you to say. So that's what I came up with. And by God, if it didn't get the, uh, the dirt sheets talking, didn't it? And it, w- it was something that, uh, look, I, uh, th- there was no question that my year with the WWF and seeing Hulkamania was pretty eye-opening. And I don't think there's any question that Hulk had a better response than Flair did because the WWF was bigger than WCW. Uh, so that was me doing, and, and Lance just loved it. That's exactly what we want. That's exactly what get people. He said, we don't want you to get on there and talk about the angles that are happening now. They can hear that. We, we need to, something different. So I did it, and I don't know how many I did after that, but uh, that was kind of the, uh, the, the direction they wanted me to take on the WCW Wrestling Hotline, 1-900-909-9900. Let's talk about some comings and goings during this time. 
Michael Wall Street quit the company at the end of January. Apparently, he was offended by the new contract offer, which was said to be in the $3,000 a week range. But there was an option in that contract to reevaluate his salary if his character took off. Instead, he tells WCW to shove it. He shows up in the WWF and becomes IRS. In hindsight, it feels like one of the smarter decisions that Wall Street made, right? Oh, yeah. I don't think there was any question. I, uh, Michael uh, uh, and Mike Rotundo, who I think who anybody who knows Mike Rotundo really respects him and loves him and uh, one of the real good guys. And, of course, you know, he married into the Wyndham family and his sons now are stars and one's a superstar. But I think, uh, I think if anybody wants to try to take a character to the next level, Back in 1991, let's say the early 90s, the best place to do it is in the WWF, not with us. Around the same time, Norman got notice that he would be done on January 30th. Tony, can you um, sum up Norman's career in a couple of words for everybody? Yeah, flop. F-L-O-P. I, I, you know, I, it was, uh, Norman was okay. I was... Uh, for the brief time that I knew him, he was a pretty good guy. But, you know, he, look, he, he kind of looked like a young Klondike Bill in, I don't know, in, in, in scrubs to me. And that didn't work. Bobby Eaton was working. Uh, he had been signed to a two-year contract for $170,000 a year, which I felt like, especially knowing, you know, how many years ago this was, that's pretty damn good money for old Bobby Eaton, don't you think? Oh yeah, and and you know Bobby was uh, as Bobby was known as back then, Conrad, and they they still may use it now. Uh, a good hand, right? A guy who will just kind of will kind of do anything for you, everything, anything you want to do, anything that you want to happen. Uh, Bobby Eaton would be the the guy that you could uh, depend on. So, uh, yeah, good money for Bobby and. I think we were all very happy with that. We thought it was well-deserved. Well, were people happy when Grizzly Smith was coming back? Because he's back in the company, which I imagine leads a lot of talk in the locker room to people talking about whether or not this means Sam Houston or Jake Roberts are coming in. Of course, Jake doesn't actually come in until 92. Do you remember hearing lots of rumors about maybe Jake and Sam coming in once Grizzly shows up? Uh, no, I, I didn't. You know, I, I think it's pretty well documented that, and I don't know about Sam, but uh, the relationship between father and son, Jake and, and father, was not always a good one. So right. I, well, I didn't think that led, I don't think any, anybody thought that would lead to Jake coming in, which I guess eventually it did, but. It was in the dirt sheets around this same time that the juicer was also done with WCW. Um, and he had been trying to make a play to get one more shot. Do you remember working with the juicer very much in WCW? I sure do. I, I loved him. I, I thought he could do, I thought he was bizarre. You know, he had a Beetlejuice gimmick. Uh, and so he could get away, we, at least we thought, with the juicer. And I thought that he could do a lot of stuff, man. I, 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 I there's a kid that, that does some stuff for us now uh, in um, Major League Wrestling. Uh, and fans who watch independent wrestling knows this, know this kid very, very well. Darby Allen. Uh, he reminds me of a smaller version of a Darby Allen, some of the, the real creative things that he could do in the ring. Uh, I, I never thought Juicer got, uh, got a fair shake with us. 
Yeah, he has an interesting career. Of course, we're talking about Art Bar, and if you haven't done any sort of research on him, I really encourage you to sort of get down the rabbit hole or the wormhole on YouTube and just check out some of his old stuff. I think you'll be really impressed. Um, also pretty impressive is Ric Flair winning his seventh world title back on January 11th. This time he beat Sting to become the champion. Uh, you may remember that Sting beat Flair um, to win his first world title at the Great American Bash in 1990. And it feels almost like at the time, Tony, you guys wanted Sting to be your Hulk Hogan. And it didn't really work out that way. Do you think Sting got the proper push and the fair chance with, with that first world title run? Uh, probably not. Uh, but, you know, uh, again, we're in the midst of changing things over. And uh, did we have anybody that was really comparable to Hulk Hogan? I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I don't saying. think there ever has been. No, I, I don't think there ever has been. I, I know what you're saying. Our, our top baby face that draws the most, that we put on top to be the world champion, right. to sell the most merchandise. Uh right. I'm not so sure they were confident that Sting was that guy back then, and maybe they were still looking for it. In reality, our biggest star always was Ric Flair. Uh, but then again, you know, Rick had switched so much between heel and babyface so much and booed some and cheered some that it was just uh, it was a different company. So when Dusty comes in, is his moving away from Sting and putting the belt back on Flair more of leaning on what he knows? Is it playing favorites? Or realistically, is it just in response to the decrease in house show business? Because numbers were down with staying champion, and that's probably not the narrative a lot of people want to hear, but the numbers tell the story, and Sting was not a major success in his first run. So what do you think really contributed to the decision to move to Flair? I think what... Uh contributed to the decision more than anything else was Dusty doing, going back, leaning on something that he knew. Look, the business was down because Sting, uh, well, not necessarily because Sting was a champion, and we thought, well, he cannot give it that run. But to make Sting the champion, to make Sting the Hulk Hogan that we needed to make him, we needed to have guys in place to feed him. And I'm not so sure that we had those guys in place. I mean, look, we had Sid Vicious. Uh, we had uh, we could have fed Lex Luger to him, I guess, in reality. Uh, but you want you know Hogan became the big star that he became because of Andre the Giant and other guys that put him over. We did not have that. I did. I don't think we did not have that line of great heel talent to make Sting the big star that he was. So I don't think it was all Sting's fault. Well, let's talk about the match. Um, I don't know when we'll talk about this. Maybe we will someday. It, Ric Flair gets the win over Sting here in about 20 and a half minutes. As we mentioned, it's in the Meadowlands, and I think it's worth talking about here that the weather was absolutely awful. Allegedly, the worst it had been in years. So the snow is really, really coming down. And the TV reporting, you know, based on like the local news networks, they're saying, don't get out, don't drive. And whatever you do, don't go to the Meadowlands. Uh, and they still managed to draw 5000 paid or a $78,000 house. And across town, believe it or not, the WWF is still trying to counter-program WCW 
they're running at Nassau Coliseum, and they draw a $95,000 gate. What do you remember about this night of terrible weather and Ric Flair becoming the champion again when he beat Sting? Uh, the finish of the match, I want to remind you, is where Sting put his foot on the ropes and Flair snatched it off the ropes before the ref could see it. So the, the number three falls, and there you go. Ric Flair is your seven times world champion. Yeah. Well, the only thing I remember about it is, is what I heard about it because it wasn't a television show. Uh, so uh, I don't think I was there. As a matter of fact, I'm sure I wasn't there at that time. Uh, I, I did a lot of uh, Nassau Coliseum uh, matches where I was the ring announcer. But that was not the case because it was that was back in the Crockett days. Uh, I just thought that uh, my feeling was, you know, they switched to Flair. Dusty's in. Let's see what Flair can do with it. And... Uh, to me, uh, not, not shitting on Sting here at all, but Flair was our, our biggest star. I mean, he was. And so if Flair's your biggest star and you want to compare him to Hulk Hogan, and like I had said in the hotline report that we talked about previously, that if pretty much they recognize Ric Flair's our biggest star and they recognize Hulk Hogan as their biggest star. So I, I, I always thought that Flair should be the champion. Do you think in hindsight, and I, and I know you don't like armchair booking, but do you think in hindsight when Sting goes down with the knee injury at the very beginning of 1990, yeah. they should have pivoted to Lex Luger at that point? That would have probably been the the smart thing to do if they're looking for a, a good-looking baby face. But, uh, you know, I, and I go back to this. You know, I, I thought Sting could work. And Sting could talk, and Sting had the look. I thought Luger just had the look. I didn't think he was a good talker. I didn't think he was that good of a worker. So it may have been, in hindsight, a, a, the right thing to do. But at the time, and of course, when he went down, I was not with him. Uh, when he went down, uh, maybe it wasn't the best thing to do. To catch you up, Tom Zink had won the world title, or I'm sorry, the world television title. Yep. On January 7th in Perry, Georgia, from Arn Anderson. Is that a Tony Schiavone dream match, the Z-Man versus Arn Anderson? Uh, it's one of my dream matches, you know. I mean, sometimes I have a dream, Conrad, of me in the ring wrestling Tom Z. I, I have those dreams. Um, one of the other things that Dusty does is he brings back his old friend, Gordon Soley. He's going to be brought in to do color with you for Worldwide Wrestling. How big of a treat was it to be working with Gordon Soley, Tony? It was a big deal. It was an absolute big deal. You know, I mentioned that, that I had worked, uh, when I started with Crockett Promotions, had got to work with uh, Bob Cottle, and now I'm getting to work with Gordon Soley. And Gordon was super easy to work with. And I remember after the show, Gordon said, that really felt good. I, I really, really enjoyed that. I said, you enjoyed it. Man, I got to work with you. And, and I remember distinctly, Perry, Georgia, me and Gordon Soley being able to work together. And uh, are those shows on the network? They don't have Worldwide on the network, do they? They just put Middle Not Atlantic yet, but yeah. I'm sure they'll be there eventually. Yeah, because I've, I've wanted to listen to them. And it didn't last long, and I think that uh, Jim Hurd pulled the plug on that. Uh, it, was, it was the wrong thing to do because I think you go back and listen to those. I think that was good stuff, and, and Dusty loved it. Dusty said that was good shit. I remember us talking about it afterwards. 
you know, um, you're one of the few guys who could answer this question, and I know this may be difficult for you to answer. I might be putting you in a bad spot here, but who do you think was better, Jim Ross or Gordon Soley? Well, I think between uh, the 60s and, and 1980, Gordon Soley was better. I think from 80 on up until today, Jim Ross was better. Uh, look, I, uh, Jim and I had a, a great relationship. We also had a, a profound rivalry that we talked about. It wasn't a rivalry in the shadows. It was an out-of-the-open rivalry. He thought I was best. I thought I was best. He thought he was best. I thought I was best. And now if I go back and look at it, and we're talking about 30 years later, there was nobody better than Jim Ross. Nobody. And uh, I, I've listened now to some WrestleManias that he's done, and I listened to these war games that he's done. Gordon Soley was great, but Jim Ross was the best of all time. Let's talk about one of the other all-time greats. Paulie Dangerously had been on the Saturday TBS show working an angle with Missy Hyatt where he's threatening to, to, to tell everyone what she had to do to get a job and what she has to do to keep a job. And I kind of didn't remember this angle, but I do remember not that long ago on this show, we were talking about when Missy sued for sexual harassment. Right. When you're running storylines like this, is that really a surprise? No, it's not a surprise. I uh... I mean, we we did some we did some silly things back then. We did some things back then that I, I know that we've since gone on to apologize for. But we did some things back then that we're nowhere near could have gotten away with today. Not even it just just shows you how things have changed. But yeah, that that well, that's not a surprise. Tony, one of the things in live event promotion that sort of happens behind the scenes that maybe a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with is the companies, whether it was the WWF or WCW, would work with a local promoter. And believe it or not, one of the local promoters for the WWF back in the day was a guy named Bret Hart. No, not the Canadian hero, the guy who booked buildings and did the local promotion. Right. It makes the dirt sheets that around this time, you guys had hired a new promoter who sort of did it old school style with the old posters and the result allegedly had been an increase to the house show business and more enthusiasm at the television tapings. The guy's name, according to the dirt sheet was CM Christ. Do you remember hearing about a crazy promoter like that? All of a sudden popping a number for you guys. Yeah, it was CM Christ. Uh, and, uh, he was, uh, he was kind of a, he reminded me of a, <laughs> I don't know, an old carnival guy. Right. Uh, and I, I called him a carny. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he did some old school stuff and he was okay. You know, that was, uh, Conrad, we talked about that before. We, we, we talk about the battles between promotions. Man, one mm-hmm. of the frontline battles is booking towns and getting venues and getting the, uh, you know, trying to go into a town, let's say, like, I don't know, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and go in with a budget, an advertising budget, and figure out what you can spend, and then trying to get some free publicity, like getting guys on the radio, or let's put up some posters that are pretty cheap, and let's see if we can just kind of put them all over town without people tearing them down. Uh, so that was frontline stuff. And CM Chris was kind of one of those old school guys. He reminded me of a, he kind of reminded me of a of, of Grizzly Smith, the way he looked and. Kind of disheveled look and everything, but uh, CM was all right. 
No doubt about it. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about what almost happened in a Clash of the Champions. And this sort of feels like an Eric Bischoff idea, but it's not. Uh, Clash of the Champions 14, Dixie Dynamite goes down at the very end of January. And it was supposed to be, according to the rumor and innuendo, inside of the CNN atrium. And about 10 days out, they make a change and decide we have to move the show to Gainesville, Florida. So they priced tickets at only 5 and $10, but they didn't have very much time to lead to it. Allegedly, the reason the call is made to not hold the matches in the atrium is because, you know, the war had just begun and they didn't want to have the ring set up in plain view of the CNN news desk. So if you were watching CNN, you may or may not see a wrestling ring with wrestlers in it behind the CNN feed. And obviously during a wartime, maybe that's a bad look. What do you remember about the hypothetical proposed plan of running the show inside the CNN atrium? Yeah, well, I remember that because of the war, they shut it down. But I also remember prior to that, there were a lot of CNN-type Turner people that did not want to have wrestling in their atrium. Uh, and that just goes back to the fact that WCW, uh, which was still bought by Turner Broadcasting, still purchased, and something that uh, Ted Turner loved, that there were a lot of people in Turner Broadcasting that hated pro wrestling, and they did not want that. They did not want us in their atrium uh, with a show like that. And of course, when the war came, uh, we all kind of thought it was. Well, it was the right thing to do, but it was also an excuse. Uh, it was also, by the way, uh, just to uh, clarify, it was moved to Gainesville, Georgia, not Gainesville, Florida. Uh, Gainesville, My that's okay. Gainesville. When you see a Gainesville, you think of Gainesville, Florida. But there is, right. there is a Gainesville, Georgia, uh, and they have a nice little venue there called the Georgia Mountain Center, uh, which is a pretty good little small venue that we ran many, many times. So it was kind of easy to move it like 60 miles north of of Atlanta for that. So uh, that's the story behind that. Well, let's talk about, um, you know, and I, I don't know when we're ever going to really make time to talk about him on the show, but I really do hope that one day we get a honky tonk man in WCW show, but honky tonk man had left the WWF in January and it's in the dirt sheets that he's planning to try to negotiate with WCW but he doesn't actually wind up coming in until 1994. Do you remember there being conversations back in 91 about bringing Honky in? And why don't you think it happened? Well, I think it happened because, uh, you know, uh, Wayne Honky was, was always kind of a, I'm not going to say a difficult guy to negotiate with, but he was, uh, you know, uh, very much, uh, uh, well, he was difficult to negotiate with. And uh, I, I, we had heard that, but it was one of those things where I don't think Hurd was willing to uh, to bring him in, or he and Hurd didn't see eye to eye. It's funny that he doesn't come into WCW until after Jim Hurd, after Bill Watts, right after Kip Fry, uh, and so uh, you know, Honky Tonk Man came in after Hulk Hogan came in, right? Right. So it was a little bit easier for him to get into WCW when he had one of his friends helping him out. Let's talk about uh, that same Clash of the Champions um, that's going down at the end of January. That's where we see Paulie dangerously have an arm wrestling match with Missy Hyatt, and you probably have an idea how this is going to end. Yeah. 
Missy takes her jacket off to reveal a low-cut leotard, and then Pauly is stunned as he looks down her top, and Missy put his arm down in about a half second. But on commentary, we've got Dusty Rhodes and Jim Ross, and the dirt sheets are a little offended at their commentary, given whatever they said or didn't say there, plus the previous allegation of what Missy had to do to get this job, and now she wins because someone looks down her shirt. This certainly feels like Missy's building a case here, is she not? Uh, so what we're saying is that maybe she did this because she knew that this was going to happen eventually down the road? Oh, no. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm okay. saying what shitty decision-making by WCW. Right. I mean, it feels like at any minute somebody would say, Hey, hypothetically, right. what if she was disgruntled one day right. and cried foul on any of this? Would we have any leg to stand on to yeah. say that we weren't discriminating against her? Yeah. Well, you know what? You're right. But I don't think we were that smart back then. <laughs> I mean, well, you, you know, we are. Listen, we've got Dusty Rhodes. We've got Grizzly Smith. We've got a lot of old school guys making decisions. Old school guys. So in their mind... That shit's not going to happen. But now they're working for a big corporation, a big company, instead of a, a, a mom-and-pop's promoter, which is what they've been used to working through and working with all their lives or all their working lives. So now the big-time company should have said, we can't do that. But it wasn't until later down the road when, that we got, you know, we got our censors guys. Uh, looking over our shoulder. But this was back before we had that. Meltzer would write in The Observer, this is one of those things that you're either going to hate or love with very little in between. I believe that just about every female subscriber called about this and felt the post-match comments by Dusty and Jim Ross were offensive. The stuff is great if you want your audience to be limited to guys who are looking for raunchy entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with raunchy entertainment, provided you realize that it appeals to a limited audience. But if you figure that women make up 30% of the audience, it isn't wise to insult that high of a percentage of the crowd. And I heard from enough people to know that is exactly what they did. Do you remember the office being, you know, vocal or having some sort of conversation about the way Missy was portrayed or the way this angle was pulled off? Uh, I know that uh, there was concern uh, with uh, Jim Hurd and Jim Barnett about it, and they went to Dusty about it. Uh, it you know, it kind of sounds like uh, uh, Meltzer was kind of talking about our podcast a little bit there, wasn't he? Uh, well, maybe a little. <laughs> raunchy entertainment? Uh, I don't know if we're raunchy entertainment. Uh, we have colorful yes. language. Yeah, we, we are. We are. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's your fucking fault, not mine. Uh, well, you told a story on this show once about a guy eating parking lot panties. So you don't get to backstep now well, after you've explained what Klondike likes to do with glass coffee tables and well, say, oh, we're not really raunchy. Well, I just, I, I'm, I'm telling the truth there. I'm, I'm, I'm relaying facts as they happened back in the day. So I'm not making up, you know, stories, one-liner stories just to get a pop. Uh, I'm, I'm relaying facts. So then sometimes facts are raunchy, I would think. Anyway, um, I, I like that, uh, that, uh, that Meltzer would say, uh, and I heard from enough people to know that is exactly what they did. I wonder how many people he heard from. 20, 30, 
40? You know, I don't, I, that's probably high. I bet it's probably a handful in each company, maybe three or four in each company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Rick Flair and Scott Steiner, we talked about this Clash of the Champions being changed. Yeah. Brian Pillman's out. Steiner's in. Yeah. The match in the Observer got two and three-quarter stars. He wrote, the first time I saw the match, I thought it was two and a half stars tops. But watching it a second time and not paying attention to Rhodes' commentary, it was kind of good. Two and three quarters. Coming out of that match, you know, you said going in, Dusty felt like Scott Steiner could be a major player. Coming out of the match, do you remember that buzz still being there? Or did some people think, well, the bloom's off the rose. We gave him a shot with uh, the GOAT. And uh, it didn't really go like we hoped, so we'll pivot back. Yeah, I think that's mostly. I I don't know if the bloom was off the rose, but I think uh, there was a realization that Scott fit best in a tag team situation. And it was very, I mean, look, Dusty put him in that situation because he's in there with the GOAT. You're right. He's in there with a guy who's going to lead the match and a guy who can make anybody look good. And it wasn't easy for Ric Flair to do that just because Scott was inexperienced as a singles wrestler. So I think the thought was, let's wait. It was too soon. But Dusty's response to that was, we gave him a shot, and now let's move on, you know, somewhere else. On the heels of this Scott Steiner match, um, Meltzer would write, it appears Dusty is going to give Brian Pillman the super push as a new Magnum TA type of character since Scott Scott Steiner's stock as a singles wrestler has gone down and Steiner really preferred to work tags anyway. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Brian Pillman has been a star for a while now. Uh, I still think if you haven't went back and watched his match with Jushin Thunder Liger at Super Brawl, you're missing out. If you want to see some Vintage Brian Pillman, as Michael Cole might say, you ought to go check that out. Super Brawl, Jushin Liger, Brian Pillman. Anyway, a lot of fans realize he's a tremendous performer. The dirt sheets love him, uh, but he had always sort of been saddled with the the lightweight title. You know, he worked some matches for that belt, even though it was sort of short lived in the WCW. Did you see him as a potential television? champion or United States champion or potential world champion in your opinion if there weren't any sort of politics involved where would Brian Pillman have sort of fell in that hierarchy I thought Brian Pillman should have always had a chance to be a world heavyweight champion you know he was a great tag team uh, competitor with uh, Tom Zink uh, later with Stone Austin Steve Austin absolutely he could do all that he could have the great matches. I always thought he should get the push to be the world champion because, you know what, Conrad, his interviews were pretty damn good. Uh, and uh, he, was, he was a good-looking baby face. He could do all kinds of things, uh, as we're going to see, uh, as we saw in Russell War. Uh, so I thought he should have been given a chance uh, to be that, that top baby face. You know, I think, you know, I know what gimmick they came up with you know, for him being crazy, and he did a good job with, with that. Uh, but I never thought he should have been uh, switched to a heel as he was in, in later years. You know, what's interesting about Brian Pillman is one of the ideas here, before they really figure out what to do with him, was to stick him in a tag team with Owen Hart, who there was some talk might be coming in sometime in March. 
and they were going to call the team Wings, or at least that was one of the working names. Yeah. Obviously, Owen Hart was a bit of a high flyer, much like Brian Pillman. Um, you know, obviously they were both trained uh, in Calgary, but it feels like it could have been one of the more uh, memorable tag team pairings from this era. Do you remember hearing about a Brian Pillman, Owen Hart potential tag team? Yeah, and I think that was tied to the fact that we were uh, going to be in Canada now with our show on the Sports Network. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because WCW had just started with TSN and really is the first major clearance they've had in Canada like this. Right. How big of a deal was that? And, and did everybody in America realize what a big deal it was to be on TSN or was it sort of not something on everybody's radar? No, it wasn't on everybody's radar, even though I think a lot of us in the office knew how big it was. I don't think it was portrayed big enough. You know, Jim, right. Jim Barnett, uh, and, I, and I've, I've been very vocal about uh, not liking Jim Barnett. Jim Barnett knew how big it was, and I, I just don't think the office took advantage of it enough. I mean, we should have uh, taped shows for Canada only. We should have done that. Uh, but we didn't, and uh, it was a big deal, but it wasn't, uh, it's one of those things where WCW, I, I think, kind of dropped the ball. And, and that's, again, armchair quarterbacking, as we do so much here. Well, after Scott Steiner fails to impress everyone at the Clash of the Champions at the end of January, at least he's as a singles wrestler, just two and a half weeks later, they decide to go back to what they know, and the Steiner brothers win the World Tag Team titles from the Freebirds on February 18th at a television taping in Montgomery, Alabama. I'm proud to say, Tony, I was actually there that night. How We're, about that? How, wow, how about that? I wish I would have known. Uh, yeah, yeah, you could have came and um, tried to uh, call me a nine-year-old slapdick, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you nine-year-old slapdick from Huntsville. Were you living in Huntsville at that time? No, I was living in Prattville right outside of Montgomery. Okay, all right. So, uh, but you could have said, you know, one day, you slap dick, you some bitch, <laughs> you're going to move to Huntsville, Alabama. You never even fucking heard of Huntsville, Alabama, you little shit ass. But one day, you're going to you're gonna live in Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, me and you, we're going to talk over the computer. I know you don't know what a computer is, you little hillbilly redneck. Just listen to me, all right? They're going to create this program called Skype, and I'm going to get on there and tell you what a glass-bottom boat ride is. And then my dad punches you in the fucking stomach, and uh, the horsemen jump on you, and yeah. you're kicked out. Yeah, that, that sounds good to me uh, because, you know, in 1991, the only thing we had was DOS. Uh, so we didn't have Windows back then. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that sounds, that, sounds, uh, that sounds like a script from Back to the Future 4. Can you imagine if there really was a, a comic book about Back to the Future with you going, or yeah, yeah, us back in time, and you're coming back to tell me that I'm going to grow up to talk about parking lot paintings with you one day. Wow. That, to me, sounds like the potential for a, a Netflix original series. And what if I'm accidentally hit by a car or something, because uh-huh. uh, I was a fat kid, and Lois tries to nurse me back to health, and uh-huh. maybe she's had one too many, Yeah, and that that's when I'll become a man. <laughs> I like it. Book it. I mean, I like it. Well, I, I, let's, know, uh, I know we'll people try to keep this going, right? Yeah, I know people who work for Netflix. That that may be something, you know. Uh, I could write that shit. I could write. Well, yeah. it sort of writes itself. <laughs> yes, it does. And and as we know, 
It's written itself already in the last uh, 45 seconds. We've already got the first episode. Hey, I wanted to ask you about a comment um, that made the dirt sheets that really made everybody tickled. Apparently, um, Barry Windham had a funny quote about Scott Steiner during a worldwide show. He said something like, you know, those biceps don't necessarily mean he's a genius. Yeah. And I don't know why, but that cracked me up. Um, And you know what else cracks me up is our shirts over at LoisRules.com. You know, School Board and Ham Cube have been getting over pretty huge. And we've even got, I think, one of our funniest shirts in a while posted right now over at LoisRules.com. Do you know which one I'm talking about, Tony? Are you talking about the one that you just uh, were showing me the other day? About, uh, I'm talking about I'm a ham cube guy. Oh, that, oh, you can I, pick I, up that shirt okay. right now <laughs> okay. at LoisRules.com. And eventually, Tony's going to call and thank you. Yeah. Is there one shirt you think that's selling better than others right now? Well, uh, you know what? Uh, I always thought the Tommy Young shirt uh, did well. But you know what's doing very well? Lois Rules, for some ungodly reason, and NFLTG. Those are seemingly every time, uh, you know, I get a lot of guys who are wearing that and uh, they, they'll go out to a wrestling match, like an independent match, and they connect with somebody else, you know, or uh, they'll, uh, they'll wear like a, a WHW shirt. I've seen a lot of those being sold, Shivani WHW shirt. My favorite still of all these shirts is my wife picked this out. I, I just love that with my stupid ass face on it. Uh, it's it's still one of my favorites, but we've got something for everyone there, and we got some new ones coming out that I think are just absolutely phenomenal. So uh, it changes a lot. So we hope you'll go to loisrules.com. Uh, by the way, if you want to go to prowrestlingtees.com, they have a brand new website too, uh, and they are having. It, and of course, if you go to loisrules.com, uh, you click on the links that'll send you right to that new website. They are having a a sale this week that started. Uh, Today, Monday, the 26th of, of February, uh, and I believe it's 20% off, so it's a good time to get your What Happened When t-shirt. And be sure to check out the brand new one. I'm a ham cubes guy. I can't believe this is a real thing, but yeah. we actually have it uh, for your enjoyment. LoisRules.com, and remember when you pick up a shirt, eventually, yeah. Tony calls and thanks you. And we also want to thank Matt Coon uh, for a hilarious uh, parody song last week about school board and ham cube. What did you think of that song from the end of last week? Uh, it was uh, tremendous. Matt Coon is, is such a talented guy to be such a, a lazy fat ass, but man, he, he can really put a song together and, and we appreciate all that he's done for us. We really do. Good stuff, Matt. If you have, if you haven't already go listen to the very end of last week's episode, one of the funniest things in WHW history, and it was just an Easter egg at the end of the show. So go back and enjoy it. Uh, you will be glad that you did. I feel like we should also mention, you know, one of the new gimmicks for Missy Hyatt. We've been talking about her a lot today, and you're going to see her on this Wrestle War, sort of continuing this angle. Her gimmick is she's trying to do interviews, but they're not letting her into the locker room. And this is basically a spoof of a Boston reporter who was harassed by a few Patriots players, and it made national news. That feels like a Dusty idea because Dusty always sort of had the, his finger on on the pulse of sports. What do you remember about this sort of spoof situation you guys had Missy doing? Uh, I remember we all thought it it really. Uh, I don't know if it was so much in a, a spoof on the New England Patriot things, but 
I think it was Dusty seeing that, you know, Missy did an awfully good job with this. She was really over-the-top silly, uh, and we had the right person in there to chase her away in, um, in big old Stan Hansen with all of his uh, tobacco and all that. He was gross. He was uh, you know, just a terrible guy, his gimmick was. So we all thought it worked out great. I don't, I'm not so sure, and I, under, I, I, know, I know the New England Patriot thing you're talking about, but I'm not so sure that uh, that was a spoof on that or not. Could have been. It, it comes out that Teddy Long's 30-day suspension he had just served was because he had tested positive for painkillers. Hmm. I don't really remember saying that anybody was suspended for that in this era. Do you remember the Teddy Long suspension or what it may have been about? Uh, I do. I, I had heard painkillers too, uh, Conrad. I, uh, and it was kind of a head scratcher that, that it wasn't a head scratcher that Teddy was on painkillers because I mean, look, anybody can get addicted to painkillers. I haven't been, but I remember back when I was, uh, when I had my neck surgery in 95, you know, they gave me, uh, these big pills, I guess Percocet or whatever. And I remember taking those and thinking that I had not a care in the world, that I was feeling great, that nothing was wrong. And I could have and and I could see me getting addicted to it. So I could see it very easily. It happening to anybody, anybody else. And of course, it's happened. But I can just remember the suspension being for face value. That he was it was painkillers. But, you know, what Teddy would say, homie, don't play that. And you know what I mean? You know, it's funny that um, you said, homie, don't play that, because that was a catchphrase at the time. Yes, and years later in WCW, one of the catchphrases I heard a lot this weekend, because Bruce and I, when we did our live show here in Las Vegas, we advertised we had a special guest, but we didn't say who. And our special guest was the five-time World Heavyweight Champion, Mr. Booker T. And within minutes of him being on stage, there was a contingent of fans chanting, suckers got to know. <laughs> and I, obviously Booker T does not listen to our podcast. Right. So I don't think that he understood that those were really our listeners and they're having a good time with our shirt. Suckers got to know uh, because we've breathed new life into that. So thank you for that, Tony. Yeah, that's uh, uh, one, one of our favorite catchphrases. Uh, and, you know, still um, I, I'm looking at all the shirts right now and I think they list them, you know, basically uh, on the, the website here as to what is the top seller. Tommy Young being number one, Loki Big Hog being number two, NFL TG being number three, and then number four, Suckers Got to Know. So there it goes. It's risen up high on the list, and thank you very much for that. Because Suckers Got to Know and Homie Don't Play That. Were you a fan of Homie the Clown in Living Color? I think you know, it's it feels really funny to even admit to that in hindsight because it was so silly. But at the time, man, homie was over. Huh. I I absolutely loved it. As a matter of fact, I can you can go back and find them on YouTube now, and they're just they're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. And and I bought some uh, in living color DVD sets too, just so I could see that you know him hitting somebody on the head. <laughs> yeah, it was just great. You know, you mentioned earlier that the front line of the promotional competition between the companies, one of them was about booking buildings. Right. It comes out in the dirt sheets at this time that the WWF had pulled out of the Meadowlands 
So the Meadowlands reach out to WCW and offer eight dates over the next 12 months, and you guys snatch it up. Getting the Meadowlands feels like a big deal because that has historically been a WWF building, right? Well, yeah, it was a big deal, but still it was... It was like going to Charlotte and running Independence Arena when somebody else was running the Coliseum. The place to run in New York City in that area. And I know, listen, I know there are people out in Long Island that never went into New York City. But still running New York City was a, the place to run was Madison Square Garden. And if you didn't run Madison Square Garden, it was, it, it, to me, it just seemed like, okay, we got the Meadowlands because we can't get into Madison Square Garden. Uh, maybe that was just my perception and maybe that's wrong. But it's, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, the, one of the big uh, population areas of the United States. So it's big to have uh, at least a building up there to be able to reach out to those, those fans. A lot of times running buildings, Conrad, were based on, you couldn't run a building, at least back in those days, you couldn't run a town based on just TBS. You had to run based on a clearance. Because in the clearance, we were able to take that clearance, like a New York City or a Charlotte or Greensboro, take that clearance and absolutely direct our advertising to the venue. Uh, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, World Championship Wrestling is coming to the Greensboro Coliseum. And that was part of uh, what was being done for those local shows. So it was very important to be able to run a town like the Meadowlands if you had a clearance in the New York area. If you didn't have a clearance back then, you couldn't run it. That was the number one thing you need. Well, and I'm glad you guys were running all these house shows because a lot of them had Ric Flair working with Ellie Gante. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Roll, I mean, roll a baloney, right? You guys have asked, I love you for that. You guys have asked a lot of Ric Flair over the years. Yeah. But getting a passable match out of Ellie Gante yeah. may have been the most daunting task of all. I don't know. He got a passable match out of JYD many times. You know? Uh, uh, not to say that JYD was the worst worker in the world, but he had a tremendous gimmick, but he was not a good worker. Uh, but again, look, Ellie Gante, right? He's a, an attraction, big. And if anybody can teach him the business, this is before the power plant. Anybody can teach him the business, how to work a match, what's right, what's wrong. Well, let's give it to the man who's the greatest of all time. And there you go. That's, that's the pitfalls for Ric Flair being so damn good. It is. It's the pitfalls of being... If, if you ain't worth the shit, they're not going to put you with El Gigante. So, and I know what you're going to ask me. Did I ever see any of those matches? I don't remember seeing one of them. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I called one. But I don't remember seeing one I, of them. I feel like you would have been really excited about that given it's roll of bologna and baby's arm holding an apple. Oh, yeah. I mean, they could have just, uh, I mean. Had a hog off. Yeah, had a hog off. They could have they could have pulled out their joints and just smacked each other with them, and it would have been big-time TV. Imagine if Elegante was managed by Colonel Robert Parker. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I got this big Elegante, Tony. He's a big guy. Now, he doesn't have the dick that I have. He's got a roll of baloney. I got a jump rope at about 12 feet long. And I want to tell you, as he wipes his brow with his hanky. 
I feel like if, if Robert Parker is there, Eligante and Ric Flair could have done the double dot jump rope routine, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's um, let's talk about Ric Flair in the news because I didn't know this until I did some research this week. Ric Flair was hospitalized around this time with third degree burns. Uh, this is according to the dirt sheets when he accidentally dropped scalding hot coffee from McDonald's on himself. He was supposed to be out like a week. He only missed a day or two. Do you remember Ric Flair uh, getting in a fight with hot coffee from McDonald's? Yeah, I, I remember that happening. And I remember thinking third degree burns from hot coffee. You know, later uh, uh, there was a l- lawsuit about that. And uh, the coffee that McDonald's poured back then was extremely hot. And Ric Flair was a big time coffee drinker. And I, I remember that happening. And I remember thinking, third-degree burns? What the fuck? But it can happen. It has happened. Did you ever see the thing about the lawsuit with McDonald's? Oh, of course. One of the most famous lawsuits of yeah. its kind. But Yeah, and there was even a documentary about it. When you, look at that, yep. you, when you look at that and you say, that's bullshit, suing for hot coffee, you should know the, the coffee is hot. But if you see the actual photographs of the burns, you can understand what, why. I mean, wow. So, yeah, that happened. Uh, and, of course, he, didn't, he wasn't out too long. Let's get to Wrestle War. We're finally here. Let's talk about the show we're all here for. I think it's one of the greatest war games of all time. Would you agree with that, Tony? It, it really was. And one of the reasons was uh, because all the guys in the ring could work. Well, and one of the things I want to talk about before we actually talk about the show is the naming and the promotion for it. Because the poster here for this pay-per-view has three of the four horsemen, not Ric Flair, but we've got Sid and Barry and Arn. They're in army fatigues. And the name of the show is Wrestle War. And the main event is War Games. And America is at war. Was there ever any consideration to maybe considering a different name or maybe switching the promotion for this, or was it viewed as being really timely? No, I don't, it wasn't viewed as being very timely. It was viewed by the Turner Stiffs as being the wrong thing to do, but we had to go out. You had to put promotions out for pay-per-views very, very early, and there was no turning back, so they, they, were, they were stuck with what they got. Well, and what they got was an interesting card. Locally, they had promoted... Uh, Lucha Libre on the radio and television as some sort of a hope to draw more of a Hispanic crowd because they are in Arizona, and I assume they think, hey, this could be a significant draw for us. So the dark match this night, believe it or not, has a tag match going down. And on one side is a name you'll recognize, probably with Rudy Boy, uh, who I believe many people know is one of the, the, the finer trainers around right out of Texas. But on the other side of the ring, it's Mr. Eddie Guerrero. They go about seven minutes and 40 seconds uh, in the end. Guerrero gets a pin using a modified Frankensteiner on Rudy, and they get a nice little reception, and the match gets two and three-quarter stars, at least from the reports of the live show. Did you watch this dark match, this Lucha Libre match, and what were people thinking about Eddie all the way back here in 1991? Uh, we gave it no thought at all. It was just a dark match that I didn't even watch, and I didn't hear much response for Eddie. As a matter of fact, I do know I do remember the match, but being able to put two and two together with Eddie Guerrero back then and the Eddie Guerrero that we would know, you know, four years later or so, 
uh, I didn't put those two together. Let me tell you what an interesting time this is for WCW because I found myself when I watched this show multiple times saying, why do they think this is on pay-per-view? If I would have bought this on pay-per-view, I think I would have been disappointed because the first people you see make their way down to the ring are State Patrol and Big Cat. Now, we know Big Cat's going to go on to be Curtis Hughes, but he's with a couple of guys who are dressed up like uh, state troopers. One of them is Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, who's going to be one of the trainers you hear so much about at the power plant. And they're taking on, as Meltzer calls them, the junk food dog Ricky Morton and Tommy Rich. And the concept here is the baby faces, Tommy Rich, Ricky Morton, and JYD, are technically the WCW six-man champions, but they don't have belts. Like, WCW did not have the actual belts. Right. And it feels like a bit of a hodgepodge group of guys on both sides. Who liked this six-man idea? And, you know, why were they moving forward with something without having the actual belts? Does this... Is this another example of maybe some WCW, everybody's not on the same page situation? Yeah, it, it's, this is classic WCW, and uh, they, I, I, I can't answer that. I mean, look, uh, Ricky Morton and Tommy Rich, State Patrol, Junkyard Dog, not Junk Food Dog, Meltzer, you dick, Junkyard Dog, uh, were established stars in the South. And to put them on a pay-per-view to lead things off in Phoenix, Arizona, to me, was very, very out of place. Against, and of course, you know, the big cat became, as Mr. Hughes became a pretty big star, and for a big guy could work, you're, you're basically starting out with a six-man enhancement match. It's basically you know, you're and and you're with. calling it a title match, which is like, right. I can't understand. A big cat had been pushed a little bit. Right. Um, but obviously didn't land himself in a big spot. State Patrol had always been enhancement talent, and it feels like Tommy Rich, Ricky Morton, and JYD here are a collection of older stars who were once super over, now maybe aren't as much, and they're not really sure what to do with them. So fuck it, let's just throw them all in there together. Right, that's it. That, 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 that's it. That's you know, I, I've I've made it very clear on the on this podcast. And I was very, very much back then an advocate of. But then again, I never did push it because Dusty was booking and just let him do what he wants. I was always an advocate of every match on a damn pay-per-view having a fucking meaning. Not just throwing guys in there. Having a meaning. And even though you, you, you end up this pay-per-view, Russell War 91, it'll go down as, to me, a, a great pay-per-view. You started out with this. Then you got Bobby Eaton and Brad Armstrong, and then you got Japanese women wrestling, and then you got Dustin and Buddy Landell, and you got the Young Pistols, Royal Family. Those matches meant nothing. Nothing. They had no story behind them. And I thought that was disappointing. Here's what Meltzer wrote about the show, specifically this opening match. The champs are guys that are languishing and never, never land. And the heel side consists of a guy who was pushed but didn't get over and as, as much has disappeared from television and two jobbers, and this is billed as a title match. For titles to mean something and title matches to mean something, 
they should be limited to matches where the marks can at least take the champs, the belts, and the challengers seriously. But this was a surprisingly good match because Morton worked most of the way with the patrol and then all worked very hard. Patrol has no credibility, but they're actually both very talented workers. Dog and Cat were limited uh, to brief moments of chasing mice. Actually, Cat has potential for the future monster heel, but he's just not ready yet. Morton pinned James Earl Wright after Dog thumped him two and a half stars. So even though maybe this grouping of guys doesn't make that much sense, not a bad match at two and a half stars. No, because they had talented guys. And, and again, you know, Meltzer, for all the, the shit that I heap on him, he, he's right that, you know, the uh, the uh, the State Patrol uh, were good, solid workers, good, solid job guys. And uh, you got a good, solid job guy that you give a, a couple of things to that, you know, Tommy Rich could and, and Ricky Morton could and sell for somebody like that. It makes the match mean something. So in, in hindsight, because it meant nothing as far as storyline is concerned, it was not a bad match to open up the card. Up next, we've got Brad Armstrong, who we've talked about here as being, and I think you called it last week, the most underrated wrestler in professional wrestling history. He's out first here, and he's going to be taking on Bobby Eaton, who they're trying to push as a heel. He's no longer from Huntsville, Alabama. Now he is from the dark side. He's got different music, but the same look. You know, it's funny because his presentation still looks the same. You know, his tights are the same, his jacket's the same, the boots are the same, the hair's the same. Yeah. I think Bobby Eaton, if he really wanted to get over and let the crowd know, hey, I'm a heel, he should have grown a beard. Right, Tony? Well, you know, you're a super heel and you have a beard. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, with, with guys like us, there's, there's a routine that you have to go through when you have a beard to make it look good. And there's nobody better, Conrad, than the people at Just For Men. Uh, I've been using their products for 15 years now to color my beard. Yes, I do color the gray out one of these days. You're going to have to do that. But they also now have products to keep your beard healthy and keep the skin underneath feeling clean. Just For Men Beard Care from the number one beard experts. The beard conditioner will keep deep condition your beard while calming and moisturizing the skin underneath. The beard oil is light and non-greasy, smooths and softens without clogging up those pores. Uh, for my age, that doesn't matter anymore, but for a young guy like you, Conrad, it might. And then the Beard Balm offers superior hydration, fights itchy and dry, flaky skin that we always get, helps prevent ingrown hairs. Now, they also have the face and beard wash, which is what I use in the shower, to help prevent beard itch, unclogged pores, calms and moisturizes, and deep conditions. Yes, beards are in fashion right now. Conrad has one. I have one. But it's very important to take care of the skin underneath as well. The best way to do that is with Just For Men. The number one beard experts. Put your best beard forward. Visit jfmbestbeard.com. That's JFM bestbeard.com use promo code bestbeard25 to get 25% off your purchase and you can go back to your loved one and say my beard is as smooth and as cool as Tony Schiavone it's from the dark side he's got different music but the same look but the crowd actually winds up treating both guys like their baby faces they go almost 13 minutes and Bobby Eaton gets the win with a leg drop off the top rope three and a, 
three and a quarter stars, according to the Observer. No surprise when you've got guys like Bobby Eaton and, and Brad Armstrong in there, is it? No, it's no surprise because they're athletic, uh, they're talented, and they both put check their egos at the door, giving each other some things and making, you know, it. I, 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 I think back to Brad's father, Bullet Bob Armstrong, who I talked with a lot, uh, never did smoke dope with him, uh, but I talked with a lot. And uh, Bob, used to, Bob used to have such, I, I thought, such great insight into wrestling psychology. Uh, and one of the things he talked about was how important it was for you in a match, even in an enhancement match, to put your opponent over. Because once you've put your opponent over, and then you go on to beat that opponent, you've beaten somebody. If you don't, you haven't beaten anybody. And here was a case of Brad Armstrong and Bobby Eaton, both knowing how to put each other over. Therefore, Bobby's match win meant something. I mean, look, Bobby came out last in this match, and that probably meant that he was going to go over. I understand that. And really, the, the fans watching this, yeah, Bobby Eaton is going to go over. And they're right because Bobby had a bigger push than Brad Armstrong. But there were moments in the match where you really weren't sure. You really weren't sure because they were so both good at it. So, yeah, I, I could watch Bobby Eaton and Brad Armstrong all day. I really enjoyed that, that match. And even though we, we do like to be critical of WCW for a lot of things here, you know, with Ricky Morton in the first match, uh, Bobby Eaton and Brad Armstrong in the second match, your dark match had Ed Guerrero. Man, you guys had a lot of fucking wrestling talent at the time. Yeah, we really did. We had guys that could go out and get it. So here's an interesting thing that I didn't see coming. I didn't remember this match even being on the card. We get, uh, I'm going to burn these names and I'm sorry. Yeah. It's Suzuki. Uh, no, Itsuki, Yamazaki, and Mami Kitamura defeated Miss A and Mickey Handa in six minutes and 47 seconds. Yeah. A victory roll gets the win uh, for Yamazaki, pinning Miss A. Um, Meltzer would write, the fans weren't into this one early since there was no buildup and they didn't know any of the four. So the match lacked the face-heel thing, so it never got heated. But once A started throwing those stiff kicks... The place kind of woke up and was stunned into getting the end of the bout. Very fast, with a very very fast pace, with lots of hot moves, including a northern light suplex. Three and a half stars. So Meltzer really really likes it. Probably to the surprise of no one, he rates it even higher than Bobby Eaton yeah. and Brad Armstrong. Right. I got to tell you, I was sort of like the guys in the crowd here. I was sort of out of it, and then when the kick started flowing, I thought, wait a minute, what is this? And uh, it got my attention. So I thought it was a good match, much better than I expected. But I don't know that I liked it better than Bobby Eaton and, and Brad Armstrong. No, of course, you're not Dave Meltzer. He's never given anything out of Japan less than three stars, ever. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but you know what I thought about this match? <laughs> Going back and watch it, you know when Miss A walks out? how she walks out with that, I'm going to kick your ass look on her face. Yep. Man, that's Lois Shivani. <laughs> <laughs> that is. I married Miss A. I married Miss A who will kick your A is what I married. I'm, I'm telling her just big and badass. And I mean, just, uh, you know, Lois, look, 
If you've never met Lois Shivani, she's the size of a, of a linebacker, and a Miss A is the size of a linebacker, so they kind of reminded me of each other. But I agree. I, I liked it, and it was something that we had put on the card because we were getting ready to go to the Tokyo Egg Dome, and this was giving some of the stars from New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, from Japan, uh, a little bit of a, uh, you know, a glamour shot, if you will, on one of our pay-per-views. But again, you know, you look at the wrestling talent. I mean, there's yet another match. And let's do one more. This time we've got Dustin Rhodes beating Buddy Landale in about six and a half minutes with his bulldog, uh, Meltzer Wright. Landale was working harder than usual, taking extra high bumps to get Rhodes over. There were a few spots towards the end that didn't go as planned, and people could see it. Buddy took one awfully high backdrop, two and a quarter stars. Um, Dustin Rhodes still in the middle of a push here. Obviously, he's got to be excited uh, to be back in the company and his dad here as well. Buddy Landell, though, is a guy who we haven't talked about a lot here on the show because he he wasn't on a lot of these WCW shows. But I think most people think Buddy from his time in Crockett. What did you think of Buddy and his gimmick, and what did you think of this match here? Well, I thought the gimmick was kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of old. Uh, you know, you know the story about, uh, about have you heard the story about uh, Rick and Buddy Landell? Uh, I, I have, but I know a lot of our listeners may not have. Smarten us up. Okay, here's the story that, that I remember, because I was there that day. Uh, Buddy had taken the belt from Ric Flair in a match. And had his picture taken with the world title belt above his head. Are we on the same story here? Yes. Yeah. And we were in the backstage in the Crockett, and they took that picture and framed it. And J.J. Dillon had it and did a local promo with that picture showing that Buddy Landell was not only the real nature boy, but was really the world heavyweight champion. And that did not go over very well with Ric Flair, and they used that one time. Uh, now, what's the is? Am I mis- li- leaving something out of the story that you've heard? No. Okay. Yeah. So I was there when that picture was was put on TV. Uh, you know, I, I can understand Rick feeling that way, but I can understand that was pretty. I thought it was pretty, pretty funny. Uh, but I thought Buddy was a talented son of a bitch. But at this time, he was way past his prime. You know, he didn't show up uh, for a TV taping. They took the uh, national championship away from him, and Dusty Rhodes became the national heavyweight champion. That morning, he walked out with the belt. Uh, they were ready to do a gigantic angle with Buddy Landell and Baby Doll, uh, and he fucked that over. And uh, Buddy was one of those guys that uh, could self-implode. At this time, he was way past his prime. I thought. Yeah, it's weird to see him here too because he doesn't even look physically like the guy we remember. And right. I think most people remember uh, the promo, the spilt liquor promo. Uh, that is, that's critical for Buddy Landale. You know, I mean, the old, I, I, he's making fun of the robes and Flair saying you'd get lost in the arms. That promo, I mean, if that thing could have ever really happened, I think it would have been a game changer for Buddy Landale. We've yeah. talked earlier about what if Brian Pillman had gotten that Clash main event. But if you could go back in time and you could have a Ric Flair feud with any one wrestler, and if it does happen, he's made, and if it doesn't happen, he's not, yeah. I don't know that there's a better example than Buddy Landell. Yeah, I, you're right. You're absolutely right. Buddy was uh, 
Buddy was one of those uh, guys. I, I think uh, they had uh, a 30 for 30 on ESPN one time entitled The Best That Never Was. There you go. Yep, and that would be Buddy Landau. So, so let's recap. Uh, so far on this card, we've had Eddie Guerrero, Ricky Morton, Bobby Eaton, Brad Armstrong, uh, the tremendous four women Japanese tag. Then we had Dustin Rhodes, and Buddy Landale, all this wrestling talent, and we're still not done. Next up, we've got, in my opinion, one of the most underrated tag teams ever from this era. It's Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong, the Young Pistols, and they beat the Royal Family, which was Jack Victory and Rip Morgan. They go about 12 minutes, and here's yeah. what Meltzer had to say about the match. Crowd wasn't into this match, even though all four hustled. It didn't make it any better when somehow the plug was pulled on the lights and changing the lighting before the problem was rectified distracted the live fans from the match. Finish was the heels go for a double suplex on Smothers, but Armstrong dropkicks Smothers back and Steve pins Jack. Star in a quarter. How WCW is it that we lose the lights in the middle of the match? Oh, yeah. It's one of the many WCW production moments. Uh that we had during that uh, that show. If you go back and watch the show, uh, that was all WCW. But there was also a lot of times to where they would pitch to Gary Michael Capetta, and Gary Michael Capetta's mic was not up to the house, or to, was up to the house, but wasn't up to TV, or vice versa. It just they just we just were we were a step behind in doing live shows. We really were, and it showed in these one of the moments. And you know what? Craig Leathers, Rob Wright. Craig Leathers, Rob Wright. That's all I got to say about that. Go ahead. You, you've heaped a lot of shit on Craig Leathers. Do you think if you ever see Craig again in real life, he'll slap the taste out your mouth and make you bow down to the row? Uh, he'll probably want to slap the taste out of my mouth, but bow down, no. Uh-uh. Well, you know, we've talked about him a little bit, and I've even had some guys who were in the business uh, message me and say, I guess they're digging through our archives recently, man, you fucking really love Tracy Smothers. But I really do. I think Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong are two of the more underrated guys who didn't get their big break for whatever reason. And here they are in almost a throwaway match with the Royal Family, which is a silly as fuck gimmick. Yeah, I'm not saying the Young Pistols is much better. But man, Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong here, this is some great underrated shit, is it yeah, not? You, you know, you, listen, you, you love Tracy Smothers because Tracy Smothers was a great talent back then and uh, just could do some, all kinds of shit and, and still is out there pounding the pavement. Good God. So if you heap love on Tracy Smothers, you do it because the son of a bitch was a great performer and is. Speaking of great performers, we got two more here. We got Terry Taylor beating Tom Zink yeah. in ten minutes and fifty nine seconds. This wrestling talent is unbelievable. The depth of this roster here. Here's what Meltzer had to say about the match. Mrs. York predicted Taylor would win in less than fifteen minutes. Taylor took a lot of the big bumps early, and this turned into a great match with a lot of heat, with the exception of Stan Hansen. Taylor has been the only heel on the card that was a true heel. Zink did a lot of hot moves for near falls at the end, and the finish saw Alexandra York distract the referee, Lee Scott, as Zink had Taylor pinned. As Zink went to argue with Scott, Taylor snuck up from behind and schoolboyed Zink for the win. There was a lot of heat on the finish, three and a half stars. Yeah. So a tremendous rating for this match. 
we've had a lot of fun over the years sort of championing our love for Z-Man, yeah. you more than I. Hmm. But everybody takes their turn to sort of shit on Terry Taylor. Yeah. But it's hard to shit on this match, man. Really good match here. Three and a half stars from Dave. What do you think? Yeah, it's hard to – It's you know, we've shit on Terry Taylor uh, because we know him. Uh, but it's it's hard to shit on Terry Taylor's work because he was a always a very good worker. Wasn't the greatest talker in the world, but was always a great worker. And I, and I agree. I like this match a lot. Of course, I like Z-Man. And you know how I feel about uh, – uh, Miss Boatwright, uh, we, we dropped the ball on that one, buddy. She, hey, let me ask you this: when, when I watched this back, I, I couldn't help but wonder this. And of course, I haven't had you know any reason to ask. Uh, but were Dustin Rhodes and Alexandra York already a thing here this early in 1991? Uh, it happened. It happened around that time. I, I can't put the. I, I can't put the. The actual date on it, I found out kind of before anybody else. How'd uh, you find out? I I would, uh, you know, she worked for CNN Makeup, right? <laughs> and uh, they had a CNN Makeup place in the CNN Center. And <clears throat> you're gonna run with this one. I would go down to the makeup chair and hang out with Terry and all the makeup girls at the CNN Center, and got to know a lot of the. Uh, the personalities on CNN, uh, Bobby Batista and I became good friends and a couple others because I hung out in the makeup room. <laughs> uh, and there was, uh, there was, you know, back then when you, you would get a message, right. And they would give you the message on like a little message card, a little thing that they would tear off. And there was a message, uh, from Dustin to Terry and, and Terry had put hearts on it. And I saw it sitting there and I said, what in the hell is this? And she grabbed that up and she said, you can't tell anybody that I'm seeing him. I said, all right, it's cool with me. I can't remember what the, if that was around this time or not, but I'm thinking it was. It was while she was, uh, while she was on TV. Let's keep it going with all this incredible wrestling talent on this card. Next up, and this is a real treat, boys and girls. Stan Hansen and Big Van Vader worked for a double count out. They only go six minutes and 21 seconds. But this is some great stuff. You know, I was talking to my friends this last week, Tony. In hindsight, I don't know that I appreciated how damn cool that Big Van Vader mask that shot the steam off was. Yeah. That was a really cool thing, especially all the way back in 1991. Do you have any memories or stories that you can share with us about that headpiece and what people's reaction to it was or what traveling like it was or any of that? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I first uh, found out about uh, Leon and Big Van Vader uh, from Ole Anderson. And Ole, uh, he had a tape of him. I guess he got from Japan. And he said, take a look at this. He said, uh, we're going to bring this guy in and uh, take a look at this mask and how cool it was. And we all saw that thinking, holy shit, what a gimmick this is. And this is my favorite Vader. You know, he had a he had a real mask on during this match instead of the the kind of leather mask that it was known for later. But I don't know if it was Leon being lazy or just didn't want to do it. He didn't want to travel with that thing anymore because he had to check it, and it was difficult. Uh, and, and again, you know, Conrad, this is not shitting on Leon, who I love, but if it's your gimmick, you, you suffer with it. Uh, 
even if it takes a lot of shit for you to, to check it in or get it around. And then the word was later that Leon just didn't want to travel with it anymore. To me, that was when he would walk out with that mask and put that thing down and would shoot the steam out, that was spectacular. Uh, and it just added to his character. Uh, but, you know, as, as you know, as we moved on, the mask was gone. Let me just tell you, I know he's still got it. And one day I'm going to talk him out of it. I want that headpiece uh, in the home theater of Conradison. Wow. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, it would be cool. And you could have the steam blow out, just, uh, you know, have a push button there. Well, I think if there's going to be steam blowing out, that should only happen when Lois is over, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So this, uh, this match gets uh, a little bit of praise from Dave, but not maybe the type you might have expected given his in the match. He wrote, There was a lot of anticipation for this match during the entrances, but the reaction during the match was strange. There wasn't much crowd noise, but everyone was on their feet. They both worked the Japanese style, as if neither was face nor heel, although the crowd pretty much understood Hanson as a heel. Vader did a clothesline off the top rope after the match ended, and both brawled to the dressing room. He only gives it two and three-quarter stars, which, considering these guys are Japanese darlings, I'm sure you thought it would be higher. Right. But I remember really liking this match, and I know that a lot of our listeners are not going to be happy with a double countout, but I felt like whenever I saw these guys work, whether it was here or in Japan, you know, there's the old cliche in wrestling. Hey, some of that may have been fake, but this mm. is real. Yeah. And those guys made me believe but they were beating the shit out of each other. Yeah, it was what we call the hook. And not only that, go back and I, I thought, uh, you know, they got over close with uh, Dusty and, and Jr. at the commentary uh, position, and Jr. kind of freaked out about it. And I thought their commentary sold it very, very well. Jr. legitimately freaked out about it because we, you know, when Leon went out of the ring, you never know what he was going to do. I think the same thing with Stan. You know, Stan was as most people who have been in wrestling knew, and if you see any interview with Stan now, he's got glasses on, Stan basically was almost blind without his glasses. Uh, and he couldn't see, and Leon was crazy. So uh, that combined freaked JR out, but I thought made for a great match. You know, it, it was different than anything we had saw up until that point. And again, it goes back to the point that if everybody goes on the outside and beats the shit out of each other on the outside, then nothing means anything. You got to build up. You got to build it up to the main event. That's old school stuff again. Uh, and I thought this did a great job of being markedly different than anything we had seen on the card up until then. No doubt about it. Um, one of the things I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Tony, and there's a pretty famous tape out there of these guys working a match in Japan, and Stan accidentally hits Vader in the eye. And almost has Vader lose his eye in the right. process. The eye actually comes out of the socket. This was really big back during the tape trading days. Do you remember seeing this on VHS back in the day? And, and how did you come to be aware of that injury? No, I, I came to be aware of the injury. I didn't see the tape, but I came to be aware of it because it's, it was pretty famous and uh, much talked about. But again, I think, again, it goes back to the fact that, that Stan was, for all his abilities and his gimmick, he was kind of a dangerous guy because of his limited sight. Uh, and what could have been a working punch because you actually are, are not seeing clearly ends up being not a working punch. What do you remember? Um, and, and, you know, this could be nothing, I guess, but 
do you remember there being an incident where the tape sort of passes around the office? Like, is there anything that everybody was like, you got to see this? Maybe it was something from Japan or the Indies or, you know, the old Great American Bash, Jimmy Garvin, whatever. Was there ever anything that sort of made its way through the office? Like, oh, you got to see this. No, the only thing I can remember was, and I mentioned it earlier, was when Ole was looking about bringing Vader in. He showed me the tape, and everybody got a look at, at Vader and what he looked like in his headset, his headdress. But no, as far as passing tapes around, the, the, I never saw anything like that, and I was really not interested, to be honest with you. So we're just getting going here on the show, but I just want to remind you again, because I'm so impressed with this. Eddie Guerrero, Ricky Morton, Bobby Eaton, Brad Armstrong, the four Japanese tag, Dustin Rhodes, Buddy Landell, Tracy Smothers, Steve Armstrong, Terry Taylor, Tom Zink, Stan Hansen, Big Van Vader. Wow. Let's keep it going. Lex Luger pins Danny Spivey in 12 minutes and 52 seconds, so he retains his United States Championship, and you're not going to believe what Meltzer had to say about it. Quote, this was the best I've ever seen of Spivey in the United States. Once again, he was wrestling Japanese style, showing a lot of what he can do, and in this case, considering his size, he can do a lot. Luger looked larger than usual. Spivey did every move in the book and dominated the match since he was doing the clean job at the end. They did screw up a hot shot with Luger ended up throwing Spivey over the top rope and they had to pretend not to acknowledge it because of the DQ rule. The finish saw Spivey try and slam Luger off the top, but Luger got an inside cradle off the move for the win. Three and three quarter stars. So in a card with all these other talents, Lex Luger so far has the highest star rating for the entire show. Yeah. I think a lot of people were impressed with Dan Spivey and Lex Luger here. What'd you think, Tom? Yeah, it was good. I was, uh, actually I was, uh, I don't know. Shocked is the right word. I was surprised about how good it was. Uh, you know, Luger looked spectacular here when he walked out. My God, how great did he look? And, uh, I was surprised that, uh, Danny could have such a great match with him because again, I, I never was a fan of Luger's work. Uh, you know, his punches never looked good to me. Uh, they were not good-looking working punches. Uh, but D- Danny had a great match with him. But, it, again, it just shows you, you know, Danny was, uh, for his size and ability, he was a very, very athletic guy. And he could work a lot. And a, a key to this, this whole rating system by Dave Meltzer is that Danny Spivey worked Japanese style. That's always going to give you a star. Uh, I liked it a lot. Really did. I think it did a lot for Luger as U.S. heavyweight champion. Right afterwards, we see Nikita Koloff return, and he attacks Lex Luger. Uh, He pretends like he's presenting him with a new United States title. It's actually just a tag belt. Slams it in his face, leaves him laying, takes his shirt off, starts doing some posing, and, of course, Lex defeated Nikita for the U.S. title all the way back in 87. But that's when Nikita was a face and Lex was a heel in the Four Horsemen. Fast forward here and the roles are reversed. I've got to say, we've had a lot of fun talking about both of these guys. But for some reason, Nikita and Lex just seems like a match that, as a kid, I would be all about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you about that little uh, thing we did on the set with Grizzly Smith, myself, and Nikita Koloff. Uh, I did not know that was going to happen. 
However, when Nikita walked up on the set and had the uh, do-rag on, so to speak, and, and he picked up that belt and said, I want to give you this, I immediately knew what was going to happen. They didn't smart me up. I immediately knew what was going to happen. And then Nikita tore off the heads, you know, tore off the do-rag and, and took off his coat and his shirt. And, and there, all of a sudden, in front of us once again, was the Nikita Koloff that we remembered from the 80s. The Nikita Koloff that was the super heel Russian with no hair. You know, he grew his hair up a little bit when he became a babyface. With no hair and that big power super heel. And that's what Dusty wanted. He wanted to bring back that guy who you realize as well as anybody else, Conrad, when Nikita Koloff first burst on the scene, man, he was, he was lights out. He was a badass, and that's what Dusty wanted to bring back. Well, Dusty wanted to bring back the Freebirds, too, because the Freebirds here are going to be working with Doom, and they actually win the World Tag Team titles here in just about seven minutes. Here's what Meltzer had to say. It's really hard for anyone to be in this position on a card. People had already seen nine matches, and the previous match was excellent, and most every match on the show was good. And everyone was anticipating the main event. Still, the personalities all had interest, and it was smart to keep things short. Doom got more cheers than the birds. And before the, the bouts started, Diamond Dallas Page introduced Big Dolly Dink, a.k.a. Oliver Humperdinck, yeah. as the new manager of the birds. Or I guess one is road manager and the other is TV manager. Right. Most fans knew it was Humperdinck, although I'm told this will not be acknowledged on TV. The finish saw Teddy Long throw in a foreign object to Butch Reed, and then Reed hit Ron Simmons with it when Jim Garvin ducked. Then Michael Hayes pushed Garvin on top of Simmons for the pin and the title change, and just for their own credibility, they should have had to at least wait for the Birds to win the titles before having them lose them. Uh, Doom broke up with Simmons creamed two and a half stars. What do you think, Tony? Yeah, look, I like the match. I like the match much better than two and a half stars. Because Michael and Jimmy could work, and I always liked the Doom gimmick, and uh, I thought it was a pretty good finish. I liked the fact that they brought in Humperdinck as Big Daddy Dink, and it was a you know the fact that Diamond Dallas Page was in all his glory with all his diamond dolls and everything. Uh, I, I liked the whole thing. I, I liked the the uh, the whole match. I thought it deserved much better than that. They told a good story, and then afterwards right. we do see. Ron Simmons and Butch Reed break up, so this is exactly what Dusty wants. He wants to push Ron uh, as a babyface, sees him uh, as a single star. Teddy Long sort of in the middle here, and ultimately, of course, is going to side with the heel. I really liked Doom. I know we've talked about this recently. I preferred the hooded Doom. I liked Doom under the mask, um, and I didn't feel like it it worked as well for me when they lost masks, but Ron Simmons as a single star is definitely something I could get behind. Right. Was there ever any, you know, anytime you see a tag team break up, let's look at maybe, um, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, if they were to have broken up or let's look at someone who did Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart, Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels. It always feels like I shouldn't say always a lot of the time. It feels like one guy goes on to be, a bigger star right? individually. Even with Rick and Scott Steiner, this was the case. Was there 
any concern from Butch Reed's side, who had been over as a single star before, even going back to his days in Florida. Do you remember there being any hesitation for Butch? If everybody's talking about what they're going to do with Ron, but nobody's really saying what they're going to do with Butch. I'm sure he thought that, but if he did, he uh, Butch never really uh, voiced that in the back. Look, um, with every tag team, there's always one star and one non-star, don't you think? I, I don't know if that's always the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you would you say that was the case for the Midnight Express with Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry? Yeah, I think Bobby Eaton was a star. Uh, what about with uh, Road Warrior Hawk and Animal? Uh, yeah, I always thought Hawk was a star. Now, what just, about Demolition Axe and Smash? Uh, yeah, that, that's a good point. Okay. Uh, I got one. I got one. <laughs> okay. Uh, even way back when, Ric Flair, Greg Valentine. Flair was a star. The Anderson brothers. Uh, Oli was a star. Uh, boy, uh, Paul Orndorff and Jimmy Snuka. Now, there's one that you may think, well, who's the star there? They both were stars. But What about uh, Arn and Tully? Arn and Tully? There's another one. You got another one there. Uh, I guess maybe, uh, gosh, yeah, because they both had parallel careers. Really, if you think about it. You know, isn't Tully an interesting figure? I know we're getting sidetracked here for a minute because Tully's not even on the card, but Tully, in hindsight, you know, we've talked a little bit about what could have been, and you sort of said maybe that with Buddy Landell. But, man, if Tully Blanchard's career wasn't cut short, how different might the wrestling landscape have looked for the next 10 years? Yeah, I know. Uh, Tully was – I always thought that what set Tully apart from most everybody else uh, was his athletic ability. He was a, he was a good athlete. And he could take bumps well, and he could deliver bumps. And not, you know, look, there, there are some guys and some guys who became stars who basically only thing they did in their careers was lift weights and wrestle. Uh, and they didn't do anything else. Tully had done a lot of other stuff and it led to a great career. Plus, he was a cocky little prick. And it came across that way. That's how Tully was in real life. You know, he was one of those guys who was a cocky little prick in real life. And he, he, was, he could portray it uh, on, on the television screen as well. Let's talk about um, the Freebirds here for a minute. This is one of their crowning moments. Michael P.S. Hayes becomes tag team champion with Jimmy Jam Garvin. And the Freebirds are much different than the Freebirds that just existed in Dallas. They've got DDP and his Diamond Dolls. They've got Sir Oliver Humperdinck. It's a different-looking Freebirds. But you know Michael P.S. Hayes, the man. You know Jimmy Garvin, the man. How excited were they to be tag champs here? Oh, they were very excited to be tag champs. And uh, I thought it was great that we put the straps on them. Uh, for me personally, uh, th- this was as much as we called them the Freebirds, and this is not, a, this is not a, uh, a smack on Jimmy Garvin. To me, Jimmy Garvin was gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and precious. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. To me, the Freebirds were the guys from Dallas. Uh, the, you know, Buddy Jack Roberts, yes. Barry Gordy, yes. Michael Hayes. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen the, uh, the Ric Flair uh, match from Dallas to where Gordy slammed uh, Kerry Von Erich's head in the, in the cage? Have you ever seen I that? I have. And, and, and listener of the show, friend of the show, Super Dave Miller, yeah. uh, just... Gave himself a self high five for you bringing it up. I yeah. don't think 
Dave gave a shit about anything yeah. unless it happened in Texas right. before 1987. Well, that was that was a classic moment when the Freebirds, Michael Hayes was uh, was was one of the referees that night and was Flair and Kerry and Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy. It was a great angle, and it was an angle that and, – and I've watched it because you can, you can see it, believe it or not, on the WWE Network uh, if you look hard enough. Uh, it was an angle that I was told caused a riot at Reunion Arena that night in Dallas uh, when they turned on the Von Erics. Uh, and uh, t- to me, that was the Freebirds. To me, that was the Freebirds that would paint their face up in the Stars and Bars, the Dixie, you know, Confederate flag, their face up like that. Uh, to me, that was the Freebirds. I know I'm, I'm veering off here, but uh, I-, I was glad to see Michael and Jimmy win the titles and the Freebird name be associated with the World Tag Team Championship. But, you know, maybe it's old school me. It's not the guys that had the battles with the Von Erichs. In Dallas, or no, I don't. Who, who ran I don't think you're wrong on that. I right. just had a debate in the last week or so about whether or not uh, Jimmy Garvin should have went in with the Freebirds. And the way we got on this subject is we were debating: when the Midnight Express go in, should Stan Lane go in? And I said absolutely. When the Midnight Express go in, it's got to be, you know, Bobby, Dennis, Jim, and Stan. Right. And folks could make the argument, and actually were, that they don't think Stan should have been in. And my example was Jimmy Garvin went in. And so if if Jimmy Garvin was a late free bird, well, Stan Lane can be a late Midnight Express. And I think you could even argue that the Bobby Eaton, Stan Lane version, you know, was almost, if not as good as the original. And I know some of our old school friends are going to take great issue with that. And I'm a Dennis Condry fan, but I grew up on Stan Lane. Condry was a little bit before me. So you sort of always uh, remember more favorably what you grew up on, or at least I do in my wrestling fandom. And I think Stan Lane is an underrated member of that team. Yeah, I agree. I agree with all that. Well, let's talk about what else we can agree on, and that's our main event. Uh, We've got Ric Flair, Larry Zbysko, Sid Vicious, and Barry Windham here. And you might ask yourself, which one of these is not like the other? Well, Arn Anderson's here, but he's not wrestling. Larry Zbysko is in for him instead. Do you remember the backstory here, Tony? Uh, Yeah, Arn Anderson was hurt, uh, and it had to do with his back. You know, Arn Anderson, as as we know by uh, uh, now, uh, had back problems. And those back problems... Uh, were cropping up many times, and especially there. So he was unable to perform as a shoot in that one. They're going to be taking on the team of Sting, Brian Pillman, and the Steiner brothers. This is going to be for the War Games. And it's interesting because we've got the old... Now remember, guys, you got Dusty Rhodes just coming back into power. So he's going to go to what he knows. And he's got the horsemen in a War Games... That's as pretty paint by numbers as it gets for the old Crockett stuff, is it not? Oh yeah, that's uh, that's Dusty doing what he remembered. I mean, uh, and having Dusty on commentary uh, during that uh, was I thought kind of a pretty cool because he's the one that invented that thing. I mean, he's the one that came up with something unique, and here was War Games, his creation. So he was able to talk about it. And, you know, he's doing it with the top baby face, Sting, one of the up-and-coming guys that he wants to push as a superstar, Brian Pillman. 
and the Steiner brothers who are over like Rover. And this really is, you know, when you look at this collection of guys, arguably one of the most talented war games crews ever, Brian Pillman, Sting and the Steiner brothers are all in the prime of their career. And everybody on the other side is, is a proven performer and draw. They're going to go 22 minutes and five seconds in the war games. And I just realized this, as you mentioned, Tony, um, or as you mentioned, Dusty on commentary, because Dusty was shown doing a stand-up ringside as they sort of tried to get ready for this cage match. And JR and Dusty are interviewing a fan, and the fan could not be more nervous to be on television. And Dusty tries his best to to make him feel more comfortable. But the beauty of live TV is JR's trying to get this kid to talk, and the kid's just not doing it. What do you think when you watch that back this week? I thought it was... I thought it was dumb as hell. They even asked the kid, uh, who's your favorite team in war games? And he went, doom. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you never work with dogs or kids, right? Well, uh, and what's great is, A, doom's not in the war games, and B, they yeah. just broke up in front of you, kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, just five minutes ago, yeah. they broke up. Yeah. So, yeah. But I feel bad for him because, you know, he's obviously nervous to be on TV, but sure. Dusty Rhodes is there doing his best to try to make him feel better. And yeah. you could tell JR is like, let's get this shit over with. Yeah, but, exactly. But maybe JR was looking forward to this match, man. Let's go ahead and give you what Meltzer wrote. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Uh, suffice to say, this is one of the best matches I've ever seen live. 22 minutes of solid mayhem. Uh, with the crowd on its feet, screaming from the opening of the action. This was supposed to be Pillman's night, since the object of this match was to get Pillman over, and at the same time have him lose and carried out of the ring. On the surface, trying to accomplish both seemed mutually exclusive, but it seemed to have been successful. Pillman started with Wyndham for the first five minutes, and it was the best I've seen Pillman look ever, and the best I've seen of Wyndham in, in many years. Yeah. The match kept the same level throughout. Wyndham bled buckets within the first two minutes, and Flair was in next for the two-on-one advantage. Then came Sting and Zabisco, who, of course, is subbing for Arn Anderson. Arn had a pulled groin uh, that he hadn't recovered from, but I'm sure, Tony, uh, you remember all about the back injury as well. So there's Uh, there's, a lot of sort of hanging on injuries, lingering injuries here for Arn. Let me me say something about Arn. Uh, Arn and I were very good friends and still are. And he and I, uh, I had a bad back at that time too. And he and I discussed many times about how our back problems would prevent us from sleeping and how we had to take a lot of like, I took Tylenol PM or whatever it was back in the day. And and he had too. Uh, And he had a pulled groin, but the back was just in the formative years of Arn Anderson. And Arn, uh, fans don't realize this, but Arn, almost ended up in a wheelchair. Uh, and uh, he's very lucky he didn't. Are you saying when he decided to retire, or was there another injury? No, there was, uh, it, was, it was a cumulative thing. It was, you know, you take all these, you take all these bumps and land on the back of your head and uh, do all this crazy stuff. Eventually, if your spine, everybody's spine is different, uh, and if you keep... And I'm doing this from I'm doing this from from being educated about the spine. Your your spine keeps uh, constricting. You keep having herniated discs that push in on your spine, and all of a sudden you you got bulging discs, and those discs push in on your spine, 
if you take one bad bump, you're done. And that, uh, that, that cumulative effort finally got to the point to where Arn took a bad bump and was almost in a wheelchair. He was very fortunate. So the entries here again are Pillman and Wyndham, then Flair, then Sting, then Zavisco, then Rick Steiner, then Sid Vicious, and then finally Scott Steiner. Two-minute intervals. And Meltzer would write, quote, Flair juiced heavy and Sting juiced as well. Basically, this match delivered even more than it was promised, but there is a downside. In a match of this nature, all the juice and the constant low blows should be accepted because that is what the match promised. However, if the promotion goes back to heavy juice nightly and all the low blows, they'll have all the same problems they faced back in 1988. The finish saw Vicious give Pillman two power bombs, the first of which hurt him pretty bad legit. Right. Pillman's feet hit the top of the cage, and he was slammed down wrong on his neck on the first bomb and legit knocked unconscious, although this was supposed to be the finish. He ended up going to the hospital that night with muscle and ligament strains in his neck and is out of action as of this writing, but isn't expected to be out that long. Anyway, in being carried out of the ring after ref Nick Patrick stopped the match, Pillman came off as the star of the night, even in losing. This result is definitely an affront to anyone who believes you have to send the fans home happy on every show, but the predictable finish, Zabisco submitting, didn't take place. On TV, the downside was that on one occasion, you could hear Sid Vicious and Rick Steiner setting up a spot. Yep. Five stars from Dave Meltzer. Yep. And we don't talk about five-star matches a lot here. This is actually the first one that happened in WCW, I believe. I think this is the first time that it happened in this promotion, yep. going back to the NWA days in 1989 when they were still marketed as the NWA of course, the, the trilogy of matches with Ric Flair and Steamboat were always in the conversation for five stars. But this is the first one of the new, quote-unquote, WCW era. You watched this for the first time in a long time this week, Tony. What did you think? Yeah, I, I agree with five stars. I, I, I'm watching this, and I, uh, I, I want to throw in a couple of things here about this. Uh, and I sent him a note. Jim Ross was spectacular was absolutely spectacular in calling this match. Uh, and that was number one. You mentioned the fans stood up and didn't sit down, and they were into everything. And that's another thing that went into making this match spectacular. A great storyline with showing that, you know, the horseman had jumped Pillman and hurt his shoulder prior to that, and Pillman showing the courage to come back. And it's something that, you know, that J.R. and, uh, and Dusty uh, talked about, the courage of Pillman. That was a, a storyline, this, and he... He portrayed it very, very well. Uh, I think they all went into making this a five-star match. Uh, you know, blood, I understand, and you know they, you, the old line was, red turns to green. If you bleed, you know they're going to come back and see you. Uh, but we have, you know, you and I have talked about a lot of war games, and there were a number of them that were that were the drizzling shits. This one is one of the best, if not the best ever, and it's because of a number of things: commentary, fan reaction. Performers in the ring, not all in the not all in the right order here, and a great storyline. You got to have that storyline, man, and that's what this had. And I, I thought it was good. Uh, El Gigante coming in, helping Pillman out. Yeah, okay, I understand that. I thought it was. I thought it was. It was. It was kind of odd that. And I remember watching it 
because when Pillman was hit first, you could tell he was hurt. And then, of course, he put it on him again. And Sid was trying the best he could do to, to protect Pillman, but Pillman was out. Uh, I remember thinking, God, they're carrying him out like a baby, and he may really be hurt. You know, he may really have some serious neck injury here that you should probably stabilize that neck, and they're letting the giant with his roll of baloney carry him out. Uh, so I thought that was odd. But overall, yeah, five stars is right. If you haven't seen it and you're, you're watching us, we didn't do the commentary on it this week. you got to go back and watch it with the commentary because it, it, was, it was every bit as great as we're talking about. Yeah, and this is one of those matches that we think everybody should see. I mean, it's one of the best matches in WCW history. And I don't think there's any chance we could do this justice. As funny as it might have been for Tony and I to call it, we can't top the original. So go check out this main event, Wrestle War 1991, the War Games match. And Tony, I know we're going to get, me specifically, a lot of flack for saying this. But I know everybody loves those early War Games, you know, the, the first one in 87 and all that. But for my money... This one and the one the following year in 92 with the Dangerous Alliance and Sting Squadron. Yeah. These are the two very best war games ever to me. Uh, 91 here for Wrestle War, and then, of course, 92 for the Sting Squadron deal. I think those are the two best war games that I've ever seen. Yeah, and, and I would agree. Now, you know, with me, and when, they, when everybody asked me what was my favorite war games, I always go back to the first one because I did the commentary with JR, and it was the first one ever. Uh, again, here I'm watching it now. I'm really watching it with commentary for the first time uh, when I watched it uh, this past week because I'm in the back watching it or on, I don't know if I was, you know, I went between the, uh, the uh, interview position in the back. Can't hear the commentary. You know, you're talking to the guys and everybody's watching on the monitor. You can't get the full effects of what's going on. You hear the crowd screaming, but you can't get it until you watch it. So after watching it, and of course we've watched the one with the Dangerous Alliance and talked about that, I absolutely agree. The two best war games ever. In the Wrestling Observer newsletter, they do a fan poll from the readers, and it got 93.7% thumbs up, 5.9% thumbs down, 0.4% thumbs in the middle. It's hard for me to imagine that 5.9% of the folks didn't enjoy the show. Maybe there wasn't a lot of stuff that made sense. It would be on pay-per-view, but you had such an incredibly deep roster of talent here. Lots of good wrestling matches, but none better than that main event. Yeah, the numbers, I, I see the numbers here from Meltzer, uh, 522 thumbs up, 33 thumbs down, two thumbs in between. Uh, if you were one of the 33 that said thumbs down, you might as well turn in your wrestling fan card right now because you're not worth a shit. Oh, of course, that number could be, you know, uh, another one of those Dave Meltzer lies. I don't know. Maybe there weren't any thumbs down. You just, you know, you, you just, you take those as, as truth. And I believe that here in 2018, there's a lot of fake news. I believe it happened a lot back then in the Wrestling Observer. Uh, but that's my opinion. That's all I want to say about that. Well, it's my opinion that uh, you can go ahead and make some steps to make yourself look better and feel better with our friends over at Just for Men. Am I right, Tony? Yeah, and you know, uh, I mentioned this before, Conrad, and and I mentioned this earlier. I, I believe that I've been using Just for Men products for my beard for 15 years. 
and now, not only do they take care of the beard, they take care of what's underneath. They take care of the skin as well. They are the number one beard experts. Kiss your average beard goodbye. Usher in your soft. And write this down, Conrad, because your beard can look scraggly, okay? Usher in your softest, smoothest, bestest beard and skin underneath with Just for Men face and beard wash. That's right. Beard conditioner, beard oil, and beard balm. Get in the shower. Wash your face with Just for Men face and beard wash. Then put the conditioner on it. Then have the beard oil when you get out and the beard balm at night, all of which are made with soothing oatmeal, aloe, and other ingredients. Because with Just for Men, you put your best beard forward. Visit jfmbestbeard.com. That's Just for Men, bestbeard.com, but only the letters jfmbestbeard.com. And use promo code BESTBEARD25 to get 25% off your purchase. And I'm so excited because I've been using Just for Men to color my beard for 15 years. And now they're going to help me take care of it as well. And again, Conrad, you need to do something that scraggly thing that you got below your chin. Uh, just put your best beard forward and visit jfmbestbeard.com and use promo code BESTBEARD25 to get 25% off your purchase. And we appreciate Just for Men, a Tony Schiavone product for years, being a part of what happened when. Well, and we're excited about next week. Uh, we're going to go ahead and let you vote on what you want to hear. Go vote in our poll that's live right now. It's uh, easy to do so. Find us on Twitter, at WHW Monday. You'll have a couple of options to a tweet pinned to the very top of the account, and then you go ahead and let us know what you want to hear next week. But this week, Tony, it looks like we're about that time. Yes, it's that time, and we have a tag team match where Miss A and Lois Rules go up against the team of Conrad Thompson and Tony Schiavone. Thompson and Schiavone are in the ring already. As you can see, they have been using the Just for Men products on their beard, so they look nice, short up and shaved. And here come Miss A and Lois Schiavone. Wait a minute! Tony Schiavone is running away! He's leaving Conrad at the mercy of Miss A and Lois Rules. What a pussy! And we're out of time! We'll see you next week on What Happened When Monday here on the MLW 